have met together to worship and uh, worship and exalt our risen Savior and our, our risen Lord. And for our call to worship this morning, I'd like to address your attention to one, to Psalm 140. Psalm 140. So we study through the book of Acts in chapter 8, we're going to see a, a wave of persecution breaking out against the church and the church having to scatter and flee from Jerusalem. And uh, uh, David uh, had some similar experiences in his life. And in Psalm 140, uh, we read, To the chief musician, a psalm of David. Deliver me, O Lord, from evil men. Preserve me from violent men who plan evil things in their hearts. They continually gather together for war. They sharpen their tongues like a serpent. The poison of asp is under their teeth. Keep me, O Lord, from the hands of the wicked. Preserve me from violent men who have purposed to make my steps stumble. The proud have hidden a snare for me in cords. They have spread a net by the wayside. They have set traps for me. I said to the Lord, you are my God. Hear the voice of my supplications, O Lord. O God, the Lord, the strength of my salvation, you have covered my head in the day of battle. Do not grant, O Lord, the desires of the wicked. Do not further his wicked scheme, lest they be exalted. As for the head of those who surround me, let the evil of their lips cover them. Let burning coals fall upon them. Let them be cast into the fire, into the deep pits that they rise not up again. Let not a slanderer be established in the earth. Let evil hunt the violent man to overthrow him. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and justice for the poor. Surely the righteous shall give thanks to your name. The upright shall dwell in your presence. Let's pray together. Lord God, we give You praise. And Lord, we give You praise because You are sovereign. Working Your purpose and Your plan through Your gracious providence. Lord, working to bring Yourself glory and to redeem to Yourself Your sinful people. And Lord, we give You praise because You are almighty and all-powerful and there is nothing that can thwart Your purpose and Your plan. And Lord, sometimes we confess that uh, we look at the circumstances of our life and we're tempted to doubt, uh, to doubt the outworking of your plan. Lord, we see that the wicked and the evil seem to prosper. We see that they seem to be advancing at a terrifying pace. Lord, we see uh, evil and wickedness thriving and taking territory and overtaking institutions and the hearts of people. And Lord, we're tempted to be discouraged. We're tempted to doubt. And so Lord, we pray that You would help us to take courage and to have confidence in the outworking of Your plan. Have confidence in Your sovereign wisdom, Your sovereign power, and Your sovereign love in the outworking of Your purpose and plan. Lord, and we're thankful that You are pleased to use people as instruments of, in Your hand. Instruments for good and righteousness and truth and justice. And Lord, we pray that you would find us faithful in that, that we would be faithful to speak truth wherever we go, wherever we find ourselves. Lord, that your word would burn within us and we would be faithful to speak truth, even though it might cost us comfort and security, safety. Lord, help us to be strong and courageous and to stand on the truth of the gospel. And Lord, we pray that your gospel would go forth and accomplish the purpose for which you've sent it. We pray that you would add to our number those that are being saved. Lord, we pray that you would bring repentance and faith. We pray that your gospel would cause sinners to turn from their ways and trust in Jesus. Lord, we pray that you would draw sinful men and women to yourself and then add them to our number as they're being saved. Lord, we also recognize that your word goes out to accomplish judgment. And so we pray for conviction and and Lord, that your word would, would, would pierce hardened hearts. And Lord, that you would bring conviction 
and repentance and conversion. Lord, we ask that You be glorified and exalted in our church this day. Lord, we have come to worship You. We have come to give You praise. We have come to exalt Your risen Son, Jesus. And we pray that He would be glorified in everything that we say and do, and that we, by the power of Your Spirit, would be conformed to His image. And it is in His name we pray. Amen. And I invite you to take out your hymnals and turn with me to hymn 304. If you to worship this morning, take out your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, we're looking at the exploding church in Jerusalem and the attempts that Satan takes to thwart the growth of the church, to stop the growth or even destroy the church. And we've seen that everything Satan has tried in the book of Acts has backfired and the church has grown. And as we get to Acts chapter 7, Acts chapter 8, the, the opposition has reached its high point with the murder of Stephen. Murder of Stephen, one of the seven that had been set aside by the congregation and by the apostles to serve tables and to, escure, to ensure a successful and equitable benevolence ministry of the church so that the apostles could focus on the service of the Word and the ministry of, of prayer in the Word. And uh, uh, these men were serving tables. And Stephen, not only was he a server of tables, but he was an effective speaker and uh, would debate in the synagogue uh, those who had rejected the gospel and they could not stand against his wisdom. And so they stirred up the mob to lie about him, to get false witnesses and false accusations. They drug him in before the council and he uh, just incredibly took the Old Testament and, uh, and pointed to God's sovereign work through the Old Testament, culminating in the bringing of Jesus to be the Savior of the world, the Savior of all who believe. And he used that Old Testament passage to show that God's People, the, the people of Israel, the Jewish people, had always resisted those that God had appointed to deliver them and to rule over them. And that resistance culminated in their betrayal and murder of Jesus. And when they heard this, they were outraged. They stopped up their ears. They ran after Stephen. They grabbed him, carried him out of the city, and stoned him to death. And now in chapter 8, we're looking at the aftermath of the death of Stephen. The results... Uh, uh, the impact that the death of Stephen had. Stephen didn't live very long, and he had an even shorter ministry, but his ministry had an incredible impact, and we'll look at some of the impact of the death of Stephen in uh, Acts chapter 8. So Acts chapter 8, beginning in the first verse, Acts chapter 8, verse 1. Now Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. And devout men carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation over him. As for Saul, he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the word. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. And the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed, and there was great joy in the city. Let's pray together. Lord God, we're thankful for your word. Lord, we're thankful that you have spoken in a way that is true and reliable and clear. And Lord, we're thankful that you have also provided the ministry of the Holy Spirit to help us with the clarity and the interpretation of your word. And Lord, we're also thankful that your word is not only perfect and clear, but it is also sufficient. And so God, as we think about a church in conflict, as we think about difficult days, as we think about opposition, as we think about spiritual warfare, Lord, as we think about deception and lies, Lord, help us to rest in the sufficiency of your word to, to fight and to stand 
and to do the purpose for which You sent it out. So Lord, I pray that You help me today to clearly and effectively communicate Your Word. Lord, that You would help my preaching be, be true and authoritative and clear. And Lord, that You would help the hearers to hear and understand and apply truth to their lives. And Lord, that You would help us as a church to find opportunity and to take advantage of opportunities that we have to speak Your truth and to speak Your Word. Pray that You would find us faithful in that and that, Lord, You would make it fruitful and You would add to our number those that are being saved. Lord, help us as we seek to stand firm on Your Word in difficult days. And it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we live in a society, it seems today that one of the greatest goals of people in our society is to avoid suffering, to avoid pain. We'll do anything we can that we think might keep us from a difficult or painful situation. And if something happens that we cannot control or that we cannot overcome, then we immediately seek to overcome that pain. We want to deaden the pain and we take something out of a bottle that will help deaden the pain that we feel or or take something out of a bottle that might uh, increase the feel-good chemicals in our brains to help us overcome that pain and suffering. We live in a society and among people who, who seems to think that avoiding suffering is the greatest goal that we could possibly have to minimize pain, to stop suffering, to make sure that we're always happy and that we always feel good. And when we come to the Scripture, we see that uh, we, we will never be able to avoid suffering in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that groans under the weight of sin. And there will be suffering. There will be suffering that simply comes from living in a fallen world. There will be suffering at the hands of sinners. There will be suffering as a result of our own sin. There will be suffering... just as our bodies wear out and get old and, and, uh, and sick, we cannot escape suffering. We will never escape suffering as long as we live in this fallen world. And we also recognize in Scripture that suffering is purposeful. We believe that God is sovereign and that nothing happens uh, apart from God's sovereign will and God's gracious providence. And we recognize that it is not God's purpose to make us happy, but it is God's purpose to make us holy. And just the Bible even tells us that even Jesus, the Son of God, God the Son, was made perfect, was made complete through the things that He suffered. And so suffering, we can't avoid it living in a sovereign world, and we also can't avoid it because it is purposeful. God uses suffering to accomplish His purpose Not just in the world, but in our lives. And His purpose is to conform us to the image of His Son, Christ Jesus. And if suffering comes, it comes because the God who is all-knowing and all-powerful and all-loving has allowed that suffering in our life to accomplish a good and gracious purpose that could not be accomplished any other way. And here we see in Acts chapter 8, we see the suffering of the exploding church. We see the suffering has climaxed and culminated in the murder of Stephen, one of the seven set apart by the church, one of the the godly, the good and godly and gifted men set apart by the church to oversee their ministry to the poor, their ministry to the widows and the orphans. And this man, in a great act of injustice, is murdered because of his testimony of the Lord Jesus Christ and his faithfulness to tell the truth to those who are in power over him. And we've studied several weeks. We've looked at the speech of Stephen and the death of Stephen and the response of Stephen to his death, the response of devout men to his death. And today we will look at the further impact of the death of Stephen. First we see the impact on a man named Saul. Now, Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has mentioned this man named Saul three times in just about six verses. We see that uh, uh, in verse 58 of chapter 7, they cast him out of the city and they stoned him, and the witnesses laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And then in chapter 8, verse 1, now Saul was consenting to his death. And then in chapter 3, as for Saul... 
he made havoc of the church, entering every house and dragging off men and women, committing them to prison. And so the first impact of the death of Stephen that we see is the impact on this man named Saul. Now Saul was a Pharisee. Saul was a Roman citizen who had been raised in the rich tradition of Judaism. He himself was from the tribe of Benjamin, one of the true, one of the two of the twelve tribes that had stayed loyal to the house of David, the house of Judah. Uh, when the kingdom divided in the Old Testament, Benjamin and Judah were in the south, and the ten tribes were in the north, and, and, and Saul was of this tribe of Benjamin, one of the two tribes that had stayed loyal to the to the to the to the uh, uh, line of David and to the worship of the of the Lord in the temple in Jerusalem, and Saul was named after the most famous person of the tribe of Benjamin, Saul, who was the first king of the United Kingdom. He was named after him, and Saul was raised uh, in in the profession of a tent maker, probably the profession of his father. He was uh, uh, taught to be a maker of tents, but when he got old enough, he was sent to Jerusalem to study under a famous rabbi named Gamaliel. And we've already met Gamaliel. We met him over in chapter 5. And it was Gamaliel, the influential Pharisee rabbi, who kind of calmed things down when the apostles were brought in before the Sanhedrin for preaching the resurrection in the temple. Gamaliel is the one who calmed things down and he, he told the Sanhedrin who wanted to kill the apostles that they needed to slow down, they needed to hold off, they needed to moderate their response. He said, if what these men are doing is a man, if the, what they're preaching, the work they're doing, the church they're building, if all of this is a man, it's going to die out on its own. We don't need to try to stomp it out. We don't need to try to stop it. If it's a man, it will just fall away. It will stop. It will end. But Gamaliel then said, if it's of God, you can do nothing to overthrow it lest you even be found to fight against God. And so Gamaliel was able to calm things down. They beat the apostles. They sent them back. But things continued. The church continued to explode. And we see that, uh, that Saul was his student. And Saul would have nothing of the moderation of uh, Gamaliel. You know, and it's, it's, it's often true. A lot of times uh, students will take the teaching of their teachers and go a little farther with it. You know, the teachers will, will, will teach something and their students are going to come and they're going to take what their teachers uh, taught them and they're going to advance it down the road. You know, John Calvin taught on the sovereignty of God and then people came along and took Calvinism to the level of hyper-Calvinism. And, uh, and so often that is, that is the case, that students coming and advancing the teaching of their teachers. That's what Saul did to uh, Gamaliel. Gamaliel said, well, let's calm down a little bit. Let's don't worry about these people. If it's of men, they're going to, going to stop. But it's a, it's a, if it's of God, we will find ourselves fighting against God. But Saul, Saul took no such moderate approach. Saul agreed with Jesus that new wine cannot be put in old wineskin. And Saul was committed to the old wineskin of Pharisaism. He was committed to the traditions and the, and the rules and the regulations and the laws of Phariseeism. And he believed that that had come from God. And he believed that in trying to destroy the church that he was doing the work of God. That he was not fighting against God, but he was fighting with God to destroy this new teaching, this new doctrine. And he was very passionate about that. And the death of Stephen just ignited those passions. He stood giving approval to the death of Stephen, even allowing the witnesses to lay their, their garments at his feet. And he was there consenting, giving an approval to the death of Stephen. And after the death of Stephen, the, 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 the flames of hatred were, were, were ignited within Saul. And Saul began to do everything within his power to try to destroy the church and to try to destroy to, to silence the message of the sinless life, the atoning death, and the glorious resurrection, and the exaltation of Jesus. You know, the, the, we, we read that, the, that 
that, and that a great persecution arose against the church that was at Jerusalem. And so there were a lot of people involved in this persecution. All this mob that had been stirred up to take Stephen before the council and then to take them out and, and stone him, that mob was emboldened by the death of Stephen. They saw that the, the, those in authority over them uh, didn't do anything to stop the stoning of Stephen and perhaps even approved of it. And so they were not satisfied with just a little bit of blood. Once they had tasted blood, they had an insatiable, unquenchable desire for more blood. And so they were emboldened by the powerlessness of the authorities to stop the murder of Stephen. And then they began to, to chase out. The word persecution means to chase down, to hunt down with the desire to destroy. They were hunting members of the church. They were chasing them down in order to persecute them, in order to silence their message. And so the mob was involved in this, but Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, only gives us one name. He only zeroes in on one man, and that man is Saul. And so initially, the death of Stephen inspired the mob, emboldened the mob, and their leader became a man named Saul who made havoc of the church. Another powerful image. Uh, the, the word here is used to describe what a wild beast does to a carcass. You've, you've maybe seen a lion on the Discovery Channel go and find this carcass and put it in his mouth and shake it and shred the flesh with his, with his mouth and his paws. This is ravishing, uh, tearing, shredding their flesh. And so Saul began this wave of persecution to shred the church, to devour it, to completely and totally destroy it. And so the opposition was emboldened by the death of Stephen. And Saul made havoc of the church. And since the church was meeting house to house, what did Saul do? He went house to house. He went into every house where believers were meeting, where they were assembling together. And he grabbed men and women and drug them off to prison. And so Saul was encouraged and emboldened by the death of Stephen to persecute the church, to do everything that he could to destroy the church. And he believed that he was doing the work of God in, by destroying this new church, this new movement. He was emboldened and energized by this. And uh, uh, Saul, in the last third of the book of Acts, will be called Paul. And we will see a lasting impact of the death of Stephen on the life of Paul. And many of the things that he witnesses in the death of Stephen, he will speak about in the last third of the book of Acts and in the letters that he writes to the church. This man Saul will become Paul and he will write 13 letters to churches and individuals that will become the, the, the nucleus of the New Testament. And so we'll continue to consider the impact of the death of Stephen on Saul as we go forward. But here in this passage, that impact is to encourage him in his opposition to the church and embolden him to persecute the church and to do everything in his power to devour it, to destroy it, to, to tear it to pieces, believing that he is doing the work of God. And so the first impact we see of the death of Stephen in this particular passage is an emboldening of the opposition. Satan has done everything he can to try to destroy the church. You know, he began way back in Acts chapter 2 on the birthday of the church by mocking and saying all these people are just filled up with new wine. And I guess when you look at Jesus' parable of the new wine and the old wineskins, maybe that's true. <laughs> but their, their intent was not to be true. Their intent was to, to, uh, to mock them, to ridicule them. These people are just drunk. They've been drinking before 9 o'clock in the morning. Look at these alcoholic drunkards and what they're doing. He tried to destroy the church through mocking. And when mocking didn't work, and after Satan mocked, what happened? The church grew. 3,000 people were added to their number that day. Then Satan began a different kind of opposition. He seized Peter and John, had them seized by uh, uh, the government authorities, and brought them before and tried to intimidate them and to threaten them with harm and to tell them not to teach or preach in the name of Jesus anymore. And so Satan had tried mocking, 
It didn't work. The church grew. So we tried fear and intimidation, threats. That didn't work. The church grew. And then uh, after that, he tried corruption on the inside. He tried greed and selfishness and lying to the Holy Spirit. And that didn't work. The, the church grew. And then Satan had all 12 of the apostles seized and brought before the council. And he had them beaten severely and threatened and released. And what happened? The church grew. And then in chapter 6, he used grumbling and uh, ethnic and cultural differences within the church to try to divide the church and thwart the, the work of the church. And the church in wisdom came and set aside seven men uh, to, to, to work through those ethnic and cultural differences and to bring unity to the church. Uh, Satan tried grumbling and ethnic and cultural differences. And what happened? The church grew. And now in chapter, chapter 7 and chapter 8, he's up this game. It's resulted to murder, the dragging out of Stephen, the stoning of Stephen, the murder of Stephen for simply telling the truth. And so now Satan has upped his game and he's shed blood. Murder. And that bloodshed did not satisfy the mob. Don't, don't give in to the mob. Just a little taste of blood doesn't satisfy the mob. The mob is never satisfied. A little bit of blood creates an insatiable, unquenchable desire for more blood. And that's what the mob does. And this wave of persecution breaks out against the church. And what is the impact on the church? We've seen the impact on Saul and the mob. They're energized. The, the persecution increases. A, a, a time of great persecution arose against the church. And what's the impact on the church there in chapter 8, verse 1? They were scattered. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. That's a pretty interesting verse. In its context, if we go all the way back to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, you remember that before Jesus ascended into heaven, He had His people with Him, the apostles with Him. And in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, He told them, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, I want you to notice something about that passage. That is not a command. Jesus is not saying... Go be my witnesses. Now in Matthew, he does say, as you're going, make disciples. That is a command, a great commission. But in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, he's not giving a command here. He's not saying, go be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Go be my witnesses in Judea. Go be my witnesses in Samaria. Go be my witnesses to the end of the earth. No, he's not giving them a command. He is making them a promise. He is stating a fact. You will be. You shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And so what happened when a great wave of persecution broke out in Jerusalem against the church in Jerusalem after the death of Stephen? They were scattered. Where were they scattered? Throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. So I want you to notice that this great missionary impact of the church, the first missionary impact of the church, didn't happen because they wanted to be obedient to Jesus. It didn't happen because they were trying to do what He said. It happened because of God's providential, sovereign action. It happened because they were suffering and they were being persecuted. Because of God's providential action, they were driven out of Jerusalem, not out of a sense of obedience, not out of a sense of duty, not wanting to do what Jesus commanded them to do, but they were driven out of Jerusalem because of suffering, because of persecution, because of Satan's activity to try to destroy the church. And so this great missionary imperative begins. They don't have a missions committee. They don't have a missions board. They don't even have really the leadership of the apostles. They are driven out of Jerusalem because of suffering. Had it not been for the great wave of persecution, every indication is they would have been perfectly okay to stay in Jerusalem. Well, 
Church is growing in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 2, 3,000 added to our number. Acts chapter 4, 5,000. The number gets to 5,000. And then when you get to chapter 6, they quit counting because there's so many. We just hear that a great multitude is added to their number. So why do we need to go outside of Jerusalem? Why do we need to leave? Everything here is good. We're comfortable here. We're complacent here. We've got uh, houses to houses that we're meeting here. We've got our system. We've got our network. Everything's going just fine and dandy. There is no reason for us to leave Jerusalem. Why would we leave Jerusalem and go to Judea, much less Samaria, where those people that we don't like very much are? And so you see here the church was comfortable. Complacent in Jerusalem. No reason to take the gospel to Judea and Samaria. Because things are going just fine in Jerusalem. And oh, by the way, it's where our houses are, it's where our business are, it's where we're comfortable, where we've got our network, where our friends live, our family. There's no reason to leave Jerusalem. Until a time of great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. So they're not going to take the gospel out of a sense of duty or obedience, but God's providence. They're not being obedient to a command. They are fulfilling a promise that God said would happen, and God allows suffering to come upon them to knock them out of their comfort zone, to rattle their complacency, and, and to drive them into the center of His will. It's not something they chose to do, but something they were forced to do because of the suffering that God allowed. And so, the church scattered. And so the impact of the death of Stephen on the mob was more violence, an unquenchable desire for more blood, not just persecuting the apostles or the seven, but everybody, every house, and the men and women in every house now became the target of persecution. Not just the apostles, but everybody. Every house, men and women, being drug off to prison. And as a result of that, the impact on the church was the church scattered. God will sometimes allow suffering to knock us out of our comfort zone, to destroy our attitude of complacency, and to drive us into the center of His will. And that's what happened to the church at the death of Stephen. They were rattled. Comfort was taken away. Complacency was destroyed and they were driven out exactly where God promised that they would go. But they wouldn't choose to go on their own. They only went as a result of the suffering that God allowed by His sovereign providence. So they were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria so we see the impact on Saul, the enemy, the opposition. We see the impact on the church. They were scattered. Well, I wonder what the impact of the death of Stephen on the gospel. What's the impact of the death of Stephen on the Word of God? Look at verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. Well, up to this point, probably two or three years. Yeah, we're in Jerusalem. Everything's good in Jerusalem. Yeah, you know, we, the apostles get drug in every once in a while, get threatened and beaten, but pretty much everything's going good. We can go to the temple. We can meet house to house. We can have our meetings and have our services. And Gamaliel has calmed things down and told them to kind of leave us alone, let it die out. Everything's going pretty good. We're comfortable. But with the death of Stephen, this wave of persecution broke out that caused them to scatter all throughout Judea and even Samaria. Why did they go to Samaria? They probably went to Samaria because the, people, the Jews in Jerusalem hated the Samaritans and wouldn't chase them there. Talk about that a little bit in a minute. <laughs> so they scatter. And what do they do? When they get to their new place, do they say, well, you know what? Preaching the gospel, preaching the good news of Jesus is what got us in trouble in Jerusalem. That's what got us in trouble in Jerusalem. And 
You know, the people there didn't like us and they ended up running us out of town. This great wave of persecution, you know, mom and daddy got drugged off to prison. My aunt and uncle got, got beaten and taken to jail and, 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 and all because of the preaching of the gospel. Do they go to those places and say, well, you know, in our new town we better be quiet. We don't want to draw any attention to ourselves. We don't want to get in any more trouble. We don't want to get driven out of this town too. So we'll just be quiet. Is that what they did? No, that's not what they did. Verse 4, those who were scattered went everywhere preaching the Word. And as I was looking at this verse, I was, uh, I was reminded of a verse that Jeremiah says in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. Jeremiah says in chapter 20, verse 9, when people are trying to silence in him, they don't like his message. Jeremiah says his Word was like was in my heart like a burning fire. His Word was in my heart like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I was weary of holding it back. And I could not. God's Word was in my heart like a burning fire. And it got to the point where I I was trying everything I could to hold it back, but I couldn't hold it back. I had to let it out. And so we see these people being run out of Jerusalem because of the Word of God, because of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, because of the message that Jesus is the Christ and He is the one that God has ordained to be the only way of salvation for all who believe, to the Jew first and then the Greek. And and, and they were faithful to this message. They were driven out of town because of that message. And that message was like a fire in their heart. They could not hold it back. And so wherever they went, where they scattered, they began to preach the Word. And so it's almost like Satan had, you know, this big fire of the Gospels burning in Jerusalem. God had started a fire in Jerusalem. And the church was exploding and growing. And the fire was raging in Jerusalem. And Satan comes and he tries to stomp out that fire. He tries to put it out. He does everything that he can to try to stop that fire, to put it out. And what happened when he began to stomp the fire? These embers went up. And by the wind, they were scattered. And what happened when those embers came down? They started new fires in every place where they went. Satan tried to destroy the church through persecution and what ended up happening? The church ended up spreading. All through Judea and Samaria, Satan's trying to destroy the church. He's been doing it all through the book of Acts and everything he does backfires. The church just grows and now little fires, little churches are beginning to be established and planted everywhere these people running out of Jerusalem go. Because the Word of God was like a fire in their heart and they couldn't help but talk about it. Makes me wonder... Any of us say God's Word is in my heart like a burning fire and I can't hold it back? You know, Jesus said that the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. Are our hearts so overflowing with Jesus? That's what we talk about. Even if it might cost us, even if it might result in suffering and persecution, being chased down and hunted and tried to be ripped apart, Will any of us say His Word is in my heart like a burning fire and I get weary of holding it back and I just can't? Because my mouth is speaking the overflow of my heart and my heart loves Jesus. And when I open up my mouth, what's in my heart comes out. And that's the Gospel, the good news of Jesus. And so the opposition was emboldened. The church was scattered and the Word of God was spread. The Word of God was spread all throughout Judea and Samaria. And and then Luke, you know, where Luke mentions the persecution, there's a whole mob of people involved in that. He mentions one named Saul. And then he mentions that everybody is involved in preaching the God, or or actually not preaching. Verse 4, that word preaching is the word evangelizing. It's not the normal word of proclamation of a, of a herald, but it is the word simply sharing the good news, proclaiming, speaking good news. 
And so as you read verse 4, don't think of a formal preaching opportunity where they prepare a sermon and stand behind the pulpit and deliver that sermon. That's not what is happening here. This is simply speaking the good news because that's the overflow of their heart. The gospel is what they talk about. And so they, everybody is speaking the good news of Jesus proclaiming the gospel of the sinless life, the atoning death, the glorious resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus, and calling people to repent and believe and receive God's gift of salvation that's by grace through faith. They are speaking the gospel wherever they go. And so don't, don't, don't look at verse 4 as, as preaching opportunities. This is simply what they talked about when they were on the road, when they were in their business places, when they were at work, when they were meeting their new neighbors. What did they do? They talked about the good news of Jesus because that was what was overflowing from their heart. They could not hold it back. And so they're all doing it. But Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, names one guy and, and zeroes in, kind of like he did with Saul. And this guy is Philip. Now, this Philip is not Philip the disciple, Philip the apostle, the Philip that we meet with Andrew and Nathaniel in the Gospels, because all the apostles, where are they? They're all in Jerusalem. This is Philip, who we first met the same time we met Stephen. In Acts chapter 6, where... There's this crisis in the church because of ethnic and cultural differences and the church is threatening to come apart with the Greek speakers over here, the Hebrew speakers over here, and different cultural and ethnic differences resulted in two churches. But in great wisdom, God shows that His idea, His his plan is the unity of churches, that we should not divide over ethnic or cultural differences, but there's one church, one gospel, one Lord, and, and one message, and one Holy Spirit. And the church, in, in Acts chapter 6 comes together to solve this crisis, to deal with this crisis, and they're looking for good men, men of good reputation. They're looking for godly men, men who are yielded to the control of the Holy Spirit, who are allowing the Holy Spirit to work in their lives, working with Him to will and to do according to God's good pleasure, godly men, and they're gifted men, men gifted with wisdom from the Holy Spirit. Two names, uh, the first two names that come up are Stephen and then Philip. So this is that Philip. Not Philip the Apostle, but Philip the the deacon, for lack of a better word, the the server of tables. And just like Stephen, there's nothing said about his ministry of serving tables, but his ministry of speaking the gospel, a ministry of speaking the truth. So Philip goes down to the city of Samaria. Samaria. And again, probably went there because these Jews that are chasing him out of Jerusalem aren't going to go to Samaria because they hate the Samaritans. And even in a day where you had to walk everywhere you went, These Jewish people who were chasing them down out of Jerusalem, if they had to go to Galilee, they would go miles and miles and miles and miles and days out of their way just to avoid passing through Samaria because they hated Samaritans so much. And so if you're running from the Jews, where do you run? You run to Samaria. That makes sense. (laughs) They're not going to chase you there. They're not going to go there for anything Uh, because they hated the Samaritans. And and as we've been studying the Old Testament, we've, we've seen that Samaria was the capital city of the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes. Samaria was committed to idolatry, and as a result, God rose up the Assyrians to overthrow the ten northern tribes, their capital city of Samaria. Uh, took a lot of the people of Israel captive, left some there, and moved other captives there. And those who stayed in Samaria intermarried. They lost their cultural and ethnic distinctions as the people of Israel. They perverted the, the, the law of God. They perverted the Old Testament. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. They didn't accept any of the prophets or the, the, the wisdom or the poetry, the Psalms. They only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. And they set up an alternate place of worship on Mount Gerizim. They did not have a Levitical priesthood. were not committed to uh, the, the line of David. And uh, they had perverted the, the religion and they had lost their ethnic and cultural distinction as the people of Israel, the people of God. And so there was cultural and ethnic conflict and religious conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. And so Philip went to Samaria. And what did he do when he got there? Verse 5. He preached Christ. He proclaimed Christ. Notice when Philip went to Samaria, he didn't say, you guys are a bunch of stupid people having your temple on Mount Gerizim. He didn't say, you guys are, are heretical apostates because you don't accept the prophets. 
You're missing a whole lot. He didn't preach Psalms to them. He didn't preach Proverbs to them. That's, that's Scripture. That's important. But notice the message. He did not rebuke them. He did not, he did not uh, 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 condemn them. He did not go to them with apologetics attacking what they believed. What did He do? He preached Christ. Christ, who is fully God, left the glory of heaven, became a man, tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. He lived a sinless life, and then He died on the cross to satisfy God's wrath against all who would ever come to Him in repentance and faith. God raised Him from the dead, has now exalted Him to His right hand, and the call goes out to all to repent and believe in Jesus. He did not preach politics. He did not preach the Second Amendment. He did not preach seven keys to an effective life. He did not preach how to avoid stress. He did not preach how to have a successful marriage, how to raise your kids. He preached Christ. He preached Jesus. And if they got Jesus right, all the other things would come along. But his priority was to preach them Christ. Because it's only by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ that a person comes to be born again. And it's through the preaching of the Gospel. The Gospel is the power of God to salvation through all who believe. And so, Philip went and he preached Christ. He preached the Gospel. Because it's only the Gospel that is the power of God to salvation to all who believe. Nobody ever got saved by stopping believing what they believe. They get saved by believing in Christ. And so that was the focus of Philip. He preached Christ to them. And what was the impact on the Word of God? The Word of God spread. The church scattered like seed... And seed scattered, and it grew. And so, Philip went down to Samaria and he preached Christ to them. And notice the multitude with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. By God's sovereignty, people believe. You know, and seeds have been sown in John chapter 4. And, uh, uh, you know, Jesus had gone through Samaria and spoken to a Samaritan woman and stayed a couple days talking to the people in the Samaritan town. And now... The ministry of Philip, multitudes in Samaria heed the things spoken by Philip, respond to the gospel. And notice God authenticating the word. So, multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Philip, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits crying with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed, and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. And so notice that God authenticated the message of Christ in Samaria exactly the same way He did in Jerusalem. We've talked about the signs and wonders, how God is authenticating the message, authenticating the gospel preached by the apostles in Jerusalem, giving authority, showing that that message has come from Him. And now God does exactly the same thing in Samaria even though the apostles aren't there, God authenticates the message and the messenger in exactly the same way. The Word came in Samaria exactly the same way it came in Jerusalem. Which shows that God's design is for there to be one church. There is not to be a Jerusalem church and a Samaritan church. There is to be one church. The Word, the same Word, the same Gospel, with the same power, with the same authority. Coming to people, all people, created in the image of God. And regardless of their ethnic and cultural differences, they come to God the same way, by His grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. They come in response to the faithful preaching, the powerful preaching of the Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. One body, one Lord, one message, one Spirit, one church. And so... The Word comes to Samaria exactly the way it came to Jerusalem with exactly the same displays of authority. The message wasn't changed to the culture. The same message came to the different culture and the result was the same. So the multitudes with one 
accord heeded the things spoken by Philip. And then look at verse 8. There was great joy in that city. There was great joy. The preaching of the Gospel and the response of the Gospel brings great joy. That God in His providence had ordained a whole thousands of years of history and allowed the division of Jews and Samaritans. But when Jesus came and Jesus died and rose again, God's purpose is to bring together in one church, under one head, into one body, a church made up of every tribe, every tongue, every people, every nation. One body, one head, one gospel, one spirit, one faith family. And there was great joy. There was joy because sins can be forgiven. Guilt and shame can be taken away. And new life can come. Everlasting life can come by God's grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And the result was joy. So what was the impact of the, the impact of the death of Stephen? Well, Saul was emboldened to persecute the church. The mob was emboldened to persecute the church. The church scattered. But everywhere they went, what was the impact on the Word? The Word spread. And the Word found fertile soil. And the Word bare fruit that resulted in joy. Stephen didn't live very long. He didn't pre. He, he he ministered even less. But his death had an incredible impact. As the church was driven out of their comfort zone, and because the message of Christ was overflowing in their hearts, where they landed, that's where they spoke, and God started new fires everywhere they landed, as the word of God spread. There's a couple of applications that we can draw from this text. Number one, as I was reading this, I read one quote from a commentator that said the most said, said religion without the Holy Spirit is the cruelest force on earth. Religion without the Holy Spirit is the cruelest force on earth. And we see that in Saul and in the mob. Very religious people. Saul was a very religious man. He had been trained under the most well-known and respected rabbi in all of Pharisaic Judaism, Gamaliel. He was a very religious man. He rigidly held to the law. And he really believed with all of his heart that by trying to destroy the church, destroying the name of Jesus, he was doing the work of God. He was committed to the doctrines and traditions of men. He held fast to that. He was exceedingly religious. And even he says in the religion of Phariseeism, he was blameless. Very religious, and yet religion without the Holy Spirit can be the cruelest force on earth. We see that in our day. People in the name of religion, holding, for, holding fast to the doctrines and traditions of men. When the Gospel, when the Word of God comes to bear against it, the response is hatred and anger and everything they can to destroy the Word of the Lord, to stop the spread of the Gospel because it's a threat to their traditions into their doctrines of men, to their place, to their power, to their prestige. And we've all heard people say, yeah, I don't want anything to do with Jesus because of those people, those religious people. Religion without the Holy Spirit can be the cruelest force on earth. And so as we look at our hearts, do I just have a religion about God? Or have I been reborn by the power of the Holy Spirit? Have I been born again by God's grace through faith in Jesus? Do I have the Holy Spirit producing His fruit in me? Fruit of love and joy and peace 
patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Do I have a religion about God that can be very cruel? Or do I have a relationship with God by grace through faith in Jesus with the Holy Spirit producing Christ-like character in me? Religion without the Holy Spirit is cruel. Second application we see here is we, we see this in the church, you know, that we need to have a good theology of suffering. We will never escape suffering. We'll never be able to deaden its pain. We will never be able to replace it with feel good chemicals in our brain. Suffering's part of living in this sovereign world, this this fallen world. But in God's sovereignty, from time to time, God would allow suffering to force us out of our comfort zone, to awaken us from our complacency, and to drive us into the center of God's will. Suffering is purposeful. And so maybe today you're going through suffering, experiencing some pain. Always appropriate to seek. What can I learn? I know my suffering is purposeful. I know it's been allowed by a God who's sovereign, who is infinitely wise, who is all-powerful and is infinitely loving and He's doing a good and godly purpose. What do I need to learn from this? Or where do I need to be driven? Do I need to be awakened out of my comfort zone? Do I need to be stirred from my complacency? Do I need to be driven somewhere else? out of my comfort zone and into God's will? Where am I resting? Where am I secure? Where do I feel safe? And is this God's way of pushing me out of that to do something that makes me uncomfortable, that makes me feel unsafe, but is His will for me, for my life? And then number three, From the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So what comes out of your mouth? Is your heart so overflowing with Jesus that when you open up your mouth, that's what you talk about? Not the weather, not sports, not politics. Do you talk about Jesus because that's the overflow of your heart? Is God's Word like a burning fire shut up in your bones that you simply cannot hold back? Has God so taken control of your heart and transformed your heart and overflowed with your heart that that's what you talk about? Wherever you go. Speaking about the sinless life, the atoning death, the glorious resurrection, the exaltation of Jesus. Oh, may God make it so that our hearts overflow with Jesus. And that wherever we go, that's what we talk about. Scattering the seed of the Gospel. Knowing that in God's providence it will find good soil. And it will bear fruit that endures to eternal life. And that results in great joy. Let's pray together. Lord God, we ask for the grace to do as James commands and to consider it all joy when we experience suffering of various kinds. Knowing that suffering is purposeful. And God, when we suffer, help us to trust in Your wisdom, in Your power, and in Your love. Knowing that this has only come because it is working a purpose that could not be worked any other way. And Lord, I pray that we would be shaken out of our comfort zone, that our complacency would be stirred, and we would be driven. To the center of Your will. And that when we get there, our hearts would be so overflowing with the things of Jesus that that's what comes out of our mouth.
Lord, find us faithful. And we pray that by Your grace, You would be pleased to make it fruitful and that You would add to our number those that are being saved. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Alright, I'm going to invite you to take out your hymnals and turn to... And at that time, a great persecution arose against the church, which was at Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. And multitudes with one accord heeded the things that were spoken. And there was great joy in that city. Joy to the world. The Lord is come. Amen.